Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley. Coming up on today's episode, blimey, health... Panics are everywhere. We're just off the back of the coronavirus pandemic. There's monkeypox. Uh, now there's polio. How sustainable is healthcare around the world? Well, there's a new uh, commission that's been launched to look at healthcare around the world. It's been chaired by Helen Clark, the former Prime Minister of New Zealand, former head of the UN Development Programme as well. I've been speaking to her about the health challenges around the world, but also what it's like to be a world leader who goes to Commonwealth meetings and New Zealand's relationship with the rest of the world. It's really interesting interesting chat coming up uh, with Helen Clark in just a moment. First though, it's our columnist panel. Normally it's Night at the Marriott, but Indian Night and James Marriott are having a night away together. Allegedly. That might not be true. Uh, so instead, we were joined today by Patrick Kidd and Laura Freeman. The Columnists on Times Radio. Yes, every Thursday at this time we speak to Night at the Marriott, but both Indian Night and James Marriott are away. We don't know if they're away together. We'll find out next week. Uh, instead, uh, playing the part of Indian Night, we've got Times Diary editor Patrick Kidd. Hi, Patrick. Hello, Matt. And uh, playing the part of James Marriott is Laura Freeman, arts Morning. and books critic of the time. Hi, Laura. How are you doing? Hi, very well, thank you. Um, I leave you to yes. You, you can sort out exactly who you're um, understudying. Um, let's let's kick off by talking about uh, the Commonwealth. There's this big meeting happening in uh, in uh, Rwanda this week. Boris Johnson's there. Uh, Prince Charles is there. Other countries um, not there, not sending heads of government. Australia, New Zealand, others as well. I just wonder, Patrick, what you think the the point of the Commonwealth is. I mean, particularly one of the big appeals for world leaders to go is because they might meet the Queen, and they're not even going to get that now. No, no. Well, I mean, the Prince of Wales isn't too bad. I suppose he gets a press of flesh with, with Boris Johnson. But yes, it's Trogham. It's always known as the, the acronym Commonwealth Heads of Government Meeting. And I remember when there was one of these in the Bahamas and one journalist who didn't have a clue said to the Prime Minister's press secretary, this Trogham, is it the name of the capital of the Bahamas or something? <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, it's 54 countries. Any, any sort of union of that many countries that goes from the 10,000 population of Nauru up to India with its 1.3 billion is going to have vast insights on, on the rest of the world. But um, what we talk about in our leader today is, is the, the, the fact that many of these smaller countries are coming under the influence of China. So China is pouring money into infrastructure in the Caribbean and the Pacific Islands and stuff like that. And, and so there is a worry that sort of China is trying to take on the Commonwealth, take over the Commonwealth, and it becomes more redundant, therefore, because um, uh, they're, they're, they're so beholden to, uh, to where the money's coming from. Um, and so maybe, you know, that's, maybe it's becoming less relevant, as you say, the Australian and New Zealand prime ministers are choosing instead to go to Brussels and then on to Kiev. Um, but, you know, um, 
it's in that odd phase, isn't it, the Commonwealth, preparing for the transition from the Queen to the to the next um, the next head of it, and what the future will hold. And I think everyone is still just sort of a bit unsure. They're, they're holding off and not knowing what they're for. And at some point, not too soon, we hope, the Queen will will pass, and um, the Commonwealth will need to take on a new role. And I wonder whether, I mean, although it's you know it, it's 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 born out of uh, the Queen and her her uh, affection for the Commonwealth. Um, Laura, I wonder whether it's also its relevance is also t- tightly bound up in sort of Britain's place on the world stage uh, and Boris Johnson's ability uh, as a as a sort of political leader to to sort of bring people together. Well, I, it was fascinating reading the the Times leader today because I think when you say Commonwealth, I mean I sort of think of some of those scenes in The Crown where the Queen in pearls and white gloves goes and you know dances um, with, with with leaders abroad, and and you know this this sounds to me like a sort of you know rather rigorous summit where kind of you know decisions about the future strategic um, you know implications of global powers are discussed, um, and I just I hadn't realised that as Patrick said that there are fifty four members with a combined population of two point five billion. Yeah. Um, I, I think the kind of you know the magnitude of it you know it took me by surprise. Um, but is it something that I mean? Because I, was, I mean, they, I think they try to emphasise that Britain is merely a, Britain is merely a member, and Boris Johnson, everyone is there equally. But is it mm-hmm. a, of all the things that you, that you think about us being a member of? Is it, does it ever sort of cross your mind, either of you? Do you do you ever think, oh, it's nice, it's nice being a member of the country in the way that some people are clearly very upset about leaving the EU and others, uh, you know, there's been a lot of debate recently about NATO. Is it something that you think normal people care about, either of you? I'm not sure they do. And I mean, you can see this in the fact the Commonwealth Games are due to start in just a couple of weeks' time in this country, in Birmingham. And I don't detect a buzz. I mean, I, I write for the sports pages and I'm not aware that we'd, we're geeing up for the Commonwealth Games and seeing how sort of... Um, uh, Jersey will get on against New Zealand in the Lawn Bowls or something like that. Um, actually, Jersey's probably not in the Commonwealth. But um, it's 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 a body that's nice to belong to, but I think it's struggling to find a purpose. And as I say, with its less wealthy members being sort of picked off by China. So when the Cricket World Cup was in the Caribbean in 2007, most of the stadiums were built with Chinese money. So they're going to think, in fact, we've seen various... Um, Caribbean islands becoming independent. What's the point of this organisation if, if actually our, our true friends are China? And that's a worry then for the bigger nations within it. Um, but that said, I mean, we don't have a military purpose. We're just, it's a club. It's probably it's it's a nice and It's been nice it's to got be a, a good club. Badge, very nice flag. Just because um, we've become big fans of Jersey this week. We talked about them earlier this week. We're going to talk about them later as well um, and their elections. Jersey are competing in the Commonwealth Games, Patrick. So just, That's good. Just <laughs> thank goodness. And, and the big scoop I had in the diary last week, Bergerac is coming back. Is it? Yes. They're, they're, they've signed term. They're making it coming back in 2023. Why? Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think John Nettles is going to have a cameo role. We won't be the. Oh, I was going to ask that. Is it, is it? So it's not got John Nettles. <laughs> it's going to be the next generation. It's going to be like sort of Star Wars films rebooted. Well, actually, they've done that with because um, I I joked earlier this week that uh, Bergerac was the show that Midsummer Murders could have been, um, and they've, Midsummer Murders has continued without him. So I suppose they can do the same. I want Howard's Way to come back. <laughs> <laughs> it's a problem, Lord. Why there are no new ideas? Why do we need to bring back Bergerac? Well, I think we've had Top Gun Two. We can have Bergerac Nine. I mean, I, you know, I think just just keep going. If people like it, keep keep on giving yeah, it to them. I watched the first. I watched the first Top Gun for the first time a couple of weeks ago. I thought it was rubbish. 
Enough of this boring flying. Let's have some more romance. Well, exactly. Well, the boring flight. There wasn't any romance. The weirdest bit was where he <laughs> he turned up at her house uninvited, and the first thing he did was ask for a shower. I know. Even weirder when he follows her into the bathroom when yeah. she first kind of turns him down. Very peculiar. Very peculiar behaviour. The other key thing about the Commonwealth Summit, of course, is it's in <laughs> Oh, yeah, Kigali. sorry, back to the Commonwealth. Sorry, we got a bit bogged down in Top Gun there. Go back to the um, Commonwealth. By the way, in, in, in Kigali, of course, this was supposed to be the destination for Pretty Patel's big um, yeah. uh, exporting policy, uh, and, and uh, they haven't arrived, landed anyone yet. And so I'm sure that will be discussed. Um, and, and the world also outsourcing to the Commonwealth bits of our home policy that we don't like doing. Uh, and so actually, there was an interesting piece in the Times earlier this week about how um, the Rwandan president isn't particularly thrilled that this policy hasn't passed. I mean, they're still obviously getting the money without getting the asylum seekers so far. But this was supposed to be a sign of sort of Rwanda on the world stage doing its bit. And actually, it's all got a bit of a it's all sort of slightly descended into a bit of a mess. So it'll be interesting. You know, it's, it's, you've got both Prince Charles and the president of uh, Rwanda both. Uh, not particularly happy about it. Uh, let's come close to home and talk about poetry. Uh, uh, Wilfred Owen and Philip Larkin are being removed from the poetry anthologies for GCSEs from the uh, exam board OCR. Uh, it's also uh, removed works by John Keats, Thomas Hardy, uh, uh, Wilfred Owen and Larkin. Um, uh, other things have been uh, put on there. There's no. There's also no Sivir Sassoon, Rupert uh, Brooke, Robert Graves... Does this matter? I mean, this, um, does this matter, Laura? This feels like one of these sort of perennial stories. You can't have children learning all of the, all of the poems ever. Well, I, I feel a bit of a fraud because the person you really should have on today is James Marriott, oh, who is, you know, the Mr. Larkin. Um, but but I, I read this story. I mean, I, I did Philip Larkin's Wits and Weddings for my GCSE in, oh God, 2004. Um, and, and I thought it was wonderful. And there are particular images that still stay in my head. You know, the poem, Home is So Sad, that ends with that short sentence, that vase. And sometimes if you visit someone in hospital or you visit an elderly relative and there might be a vase on a windowsill and you just think, oh, that vase. And I think Larkin is so amazing at creating these phrases and images that sort of indelibly imprint themselves on your memory. So I, I do think it's a shame that, that Larkin is gone because I think he is so brilliant at pinpointing particular aspects of British social behaviour or landscape or tradition, um, you know, not necessarily in a celebratory way, often in a quite subdued way, but they just stay with you. Uh, what do you think, Patrick? Well, I mean, Larkin saw it coming, and that will be England gone, the shadows, the meadows, the lanes, the guild halls, the carved choirs, there'll be books, it will linger on in galleries, but all that remains for us will be concrete and tires. I mean, he, he was pretty gloomy, even when the heyday of... <laughs> um, it was all going to... Pop. I mean, Laura is right, there is only so much room, there's only so many people you can get through in a year, some variety, some shake-up, I mean, it's important, you must always have Shakespeare, I think if you were dropping Shakespeare that'd be worrying, we could all have our favourite, I would love to see Woodhouse and War there. Um, <laughs> I'm slightly worried that of the 17 new people who've come in, 16 are poets of colour, not anything against poets of colour, but it then seems like it's a political agenda. It's more than just increasing diversity. It is sort of a complete overhaul. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm not going to cry woke on this. I, do, I just think there must be some, some 21st century poets of all backgrounds that could be considered rather than trying to focus on, on one group. But, you know, it's all about inspiring love. You want children to be gripped by the writing and, and people from all backgrounds can write stuff that speaks to the soul. 
Uh, and, um, you know, if they fall in love with poetry, they will discover Larkin. They'll, they'll go and read the War Poets and Hardy. Mm. And so um, I, I just want an English syllabus that, that builds that spirit uh, within them of, of love for literature. And I suppose that's the thing. And actually, the whole point of doing it is, it's, to some extent, it's comparing, you know, poems and what you want mm-hmm. is like a mixture of styles a mixture you know because then they can have the question you know who's who best captures the mood or whatever you know that's the mm-hmm. it's a comparative part of it and actually just having a lot of old dead white men is but is but you know makes it a slightly less uh interesting selection i suppose that's the thing if we're going to have old dead white men let's have ronnie barker <laughs> right well we can agree on that <laughs> more m- more more ronnie barker and less top gun <laughs> well, I think I, I, I'm, I'm sort of with Patrick. I mean, I, what worried me about the story is I think, well, it said we've got an LGBTQ plus poet and we've got a deaf poet and we've got a Ukrainian poet, which is fine. But what I wanted to know is, do you have a romantic poet, a lyric poet, modernist yes. poet? Do they write sonnet, epic, haiku, nonsense verse, ballad, whatever it is? I, I don't just want to know about the identity of the poet. I want to know about the poem itself and kind of you know what it's saying and in what mood and what register and you know I, I just think it's a shame that, that we're so obsessed with identity politics that the identity of the author is always the most interesting thing and I, I'm not convinced it is. Well you could argue Wilfred Owen is an LGBTQ plus poet. He doesn't, <laughs> yes, he doesn't wear the label. Soon. Yeah. Yes. Um, or as uh, um, uh, Charles Brandreth because um, uh, he obviously he's a lover of poetry uh, and he, you know, he, but he loves a, he loves a funny poem. That's a really important thing as well. Mm. He, because mm. he was on the show last week, and he, what was it? He t- said there was a young man from Peru whose limericks stopped at line two, which I thought was terrific. <laughs> That's all, put that on the syllabus. More pamers. <laughs> <laughs> More pamers on the syllabus. Right, we can, that, right. Let's leave it there before we fall out. Um, I, think we've, I think we fully agreed there. Uh, More pamers and Charles Brandreth on the poetry syllabus. <laughs> Laura Freeman and Patrick Kidd, and of course, you can read them in The Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. If you want to come on the radio and play the quiz, can you get to number 10? Email me now, matt.chorley at times.radio. We'll get you on very soon. Up next is my chat with Helen Clark. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
You're listening to the Redbox podcast now. It's time for this. Today, health news has dominated, well, it's dominated the headlines for a long time. It's dominated by outbreaks of disease over the past couple of years. Coronavirus, of course. But in recent weeks, monkeypox and just yesterday, the news that polio is back. But underlying that is something more long-term. It's less noticed, but probably even more significant. The head of the World Health Organization warns that the greatest threat to global security is the fact that billions of people lack essential health services. But what can universal health care look like in countries around a world divided between haves and have-nots, where richer countries often just look after themselves and the poorest countries are left to struggle? Well, this week, the think tank Chatham House launches a commission for universal health looking at how to prepare every country for the health threats of the future. Its co-chair is Helen Clark, former Prime Minister of New Zealand and former head of the United Nations Development Programme, now President of Chatham House, co-chair of this commission. And I'm delighted that Helen joins me now. Morning, Helen. Good morning. It's really good to have you with us. Um, I suppose let's, let's start with the, with the sort of the absolute basics. When we talk about universal health, what, what do we mean? Because that's going to mean different things in different places. Is it universal access? Is it universal free access? What, what do we mean when we talk about universal health care? So the, the devil's always in the detail and the definition, isn't it? And this commission is deliberately called universal health to take a little bit broader than universal health coverage. If we say universal health coverage, that tends to mean access to services as as via the NHS. But achieving universal health is also uh, about uh, tackling what's often called the social determinants of health. It's, it's how do you prevent a disease in the first place? Uh, but as you say, there are billions around the world who lack access to affordable health care. And for poor families worldwide, being in that position means you can face catastrophic health expenditure when something goes wrong, literally bankrupt a family. So the idea of having services that you can access, ideally free of charge or for something uh, very nominal, is absolutely critical to giving human beings that sense of security, that human security that you're not going to go under when adversity strikes. And I suppose uh, what we're often talking about is the countries with the least substantial uh, health, offer of uh, universal health care um, uh, are the countries with the poorest people who are least able to then pay uh, when things do go wrong. That, that, that's right. The country may be poor, they are poor, something goes wrong, you know, every family will try to do whatever it can to save the sick child, the, the sick parent. And that can mean pawning everything they've got, selling everything uh, they've got. It, it, it's quite disastrous. But I think a key point here is that uh, for many of our countries and what we now regard as the high-income world, we went to these kinds of systems, not when we were super rich, but actually when we were on you know, the, the, the bones of our, our backsides as well. If, if I think of Sweden and New Zealand, who were leaders in this in the 1930s, we did it in the Great Depression because people were so poor, so impoverished uh, by the Depression. And, and to be able to go to a public hospital for no cost whatsoever, which is still the case in New Zealand as it, as it is in the UK. Uh, th this was just something so important. Now, in the United Kingdom, uh, your uh, national health system also came out of crisis. It, it came at the end of the, of the Second World War. And if you look around the world, these systems have been established, not when we were rich, doing well, but actually 
when so many of our people were poor. And so is is the hope to some extent, if there is, you kind of hope in the same sense as the, the coronavirus pandemic, that actually this might be one of those pivot points as well, that actually the the impact of coronavirus, the, the health impact, uh, the social impact, the economic impact might be one of those moments which will sort of trigger another wave of countries creating a universal healthcare system. That's exactly our point. We are living in a time of tremendous global crisis, sometimes referred to as a syndemic of challenges. You've got the, the climate crisis hanging over us as an existential threat. You've had COVID, which has been devastating to economies, societies and families. And now you've got these compounding uh, impacts of conflicts, the, the, the latest of the, the many in the long, sad list being Ukraine. And the Ukraine crisis is precipitating, frankly, another global health crisis, which is that of hunger and impoverishment, the cost of food worldwide. Not, not just in the our poorest countries, the United Kingdom, New Zealand, is making things very difficult for families. The cost of, of energy, uh, not only affecting whether people can afford to, to, to fuel uh, their transport, but of course, energy costs are also you know, pretty prominent in food production costs as, as well from agriculture through the food processing chain. So we live in a time where people are feeling very, very insecure. And in my opinion, I know this is shared by the Chatham House team, uh, this is the time to be pressing forward with universal health because people are yearning for security. So many feel very insecure, very vulnerable in, in the global challenges that are impacting on, on every family and household now. It's interesting as well, when you talk about all those issues, whether it's uh, climate change, the, the, the pandemic, uh, Ukraine too, all these things have sort of served as a reminder of just how interdependent we are. The, the sort of I'm all right, Jack, you know, we're OK here approach just doesn't work because the food we get is all interconnected. The same is true of fuel. Gas and oil is a massive problem across uh, Europe. The way that the, the pandemic spread, we're not all out of it until everyone's out of it. Do you think that there's been a sort of a complacency amongst, I don't know whether it's the public or world leaders, about uh, making sure that all of that interdependency is more secure? Yes, I, I think we took the security of global supply chains uh, for granted. Uh, and then I think for many of us in the West, a lot of the shocking, dreadful conflicts around the world didn't impact so directly on us. You know, were we directly impacted by the tragedy in Tigray or Myanmar? Afghanistan, once we've got our nationals out, we tend to forget about that. I think Ukraine has been a huge wake-up call to see war in Europe again, you know, 70, almost 75 years after the end of World War II. We, we didn't think we'd see that. Yes, we had the, the issues in the Balkans and very tragic conflicts and Bosnia-Herzegovina and, and parts of Croatia and other former Yugoslavia, but this Ukraine crisis has really, in an age of globalisation with so much interconnectedness in the, in the supply chains, it's hit us pretty hard. So no room for complacency. We, we, we have to, 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 to try to get the multilateral system to work for a start, which is challenging. But I think for every country now, looking at how you bolster that fundamental human security of your people in these very challenging times is important. And universal health coverage and universal health is part of that.
And so let's talk about the commission. Who's on it and what do you uh, hopefully, what would you like it to achieve? Because I know it's going to last us all for a couple of years. What would be the, the eye, what's, what's, the, what's the most you can hope for uh, as, as a result of the, of the work that you're doing? So the commission is co-chaired by the former president of Tanzania, President Kikwete, who I got to know when we were both at the Chogums together. Uh, and then uh, he's been a, a tremendous champion of, of international causes, including on health and done a lot of work on malaria uh, over over the years as well. So we're the co-chairs. And then Chatham House has, has uh, given us this incredible panel of people. I think everybody said yes, which is why it's gone to over over 30, which shows you the appetite for it. Uh, people like Sanya Nishta, who was a serious contender for WHO uh, Secretary General a few years ago and has been a minister in, in Pakistan until recently, well acknowledged for expertise in, in global health. Richard Horton of The Lancet, uh, who's, who's so articulate and passionate about these issues, is, is on. Uh, really just a range of experts, civil society, people with government experience from around the world. Now, uh, then to the work program, which we're, we're discussing. Uh, we want to uh, be able to show uh, how countries have used these times of crisis to move forward on these issues. Because I think still fundamentally people often think, well, how can you ask a poor country to do this? And I come back to the point, many of our countries did it when we were far, far poorer. Than, than we are today. Uh, so it, it's showing that, that this is possible and then using the whole range of examples worldwide. For example, China, uh, with its reforms from uh, from 79, uh, went down uh, quite a, um, not, not a public health system route. <laughs> and in the face of SARS, it had to go back to a more public health system. If you look at Thailand, the huge shock for Thailand was the Asian financial crisis, which we've almost forgotten about so many crises since. But at the turn of the century and now, Thailand was on its back with the Asian financial crisis. That's when they moved to universal health. So you can go through these examples from around the world and say, here's how they did it. Here's what the catalyst was. And then you can show what the range of systems are. Look, you know, not everyone's may look like New Zealand's or, or the UK's, but the chances are uh, that we can inspire leaders to see that a basic system of universal health is achievable. And again, taking that slightly broader definition than just access to uh, services, investment in the public health infrastructure. That was really lacking when we went into the into the pandemic, and everyone had to scramble to get that back up to uh, to speed. We've got to maintain that and invest in it. We've got to address these these issues that in Western societies we have addressed, like tobacco regulation, to some extent, uh, alcohol uh, regulation, you know, the food labeling, the, the sugar content. In, in many developing countries that level of regulation is just not there and 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 so the burden of these non-communicable diseases is rising very very steeply in, in poor countries this is not a rich country problem it's increasingly a, a lower middle income country problem so so we need to you know flesh out the issues of, of what works in People then will adapt it to their own context. There's no one model here, but to inspire people with the view that this is possible. And I suppose the thing is, it's not just this isn't just sort of money down the drain if you invest in this. If your people are healthier, 
uh, they can uh, work for longer, work more, spend, you know, generating more wealth uh, and all the knock-on impacts of that. And if you look at, I mean, the, the tale is told in life expectancies, people in the Central African Republic live to just 53 on average. In Japan, it's 85. And, and, and the economic uh, outlook for both of those countries is, is, will be connected to their ability to, to work, uh, to have a, a successful economic society. It, it, absolutely. If, if your people aren't healthy, you're not going to get the productivity uh, that, that you need to run a, a modern economy. If your children are so poorly nourished, if mothers giving birth are very poorly nourished, this has lifelong effects on a child's capacity to learn, uh, to do well at school, to be part of a modern economy. We, we still have many societies where the, the level of stunting of children from poor nutrition uh, is high, though many of those children will not be able to reach their full potential because of that you know, basic underinvestment in nutrition. That's why I think you know, a, a broader approach than just saying access to services is, is important. You know, everything that can be done to see that a mother and a child is well nourished is a huge investment in the future of our countries. Um, let's focus just for a moment on uh, on COVID and the. I mean, here in Britain, it's, it's sort of sometimes spoken of a bit in the, sort of in the past tense, even though cases are are rising here. Do you? How far are, are we from getting to uh, it, it being a thing that happened rather than a thing that is happening? When do we get to a post-COVID world? Well, I'm glad you asked the question because I spent over the last two years really completely preoccupied by work that. It began when I co-chaired the Independent Panel for Pandemic Preparedness and Response uh, set up at the request of the World Health Assembly. In May 2020, I think they thought it would be done and dusted by the time uh, that our report went to them in May 2021. Well, as you say, this pandemic ain't over. The problem we've got is that people are over COVID. Right, they're sick of they're sick of the restrictions, but COVID ain't over us. It's still there. Look, I've just come to Europe on this current visit, uh, travelling out of New Zealand for the first time in two years and three months. <laughs> we we were free to leave, but we couldn't get back because of, of quarantine, which which I support. But as a New Zealander, uh, landing at Heathrow and being in the sort of 1% of people who were masked, you, you do get a bit blown away. Um, so I think, you know, my, my appeal would really be to, to populations that this is still spreading. It's still capable of developing something rather more deadly than Omicron. And, and what concerns epidemiologists and infectious disease people the most, I think, is that we could get something both more transmissible and more lethal than, than Omicron. So you, you have to prepare for the range of possibilities. And to the extent that we, we can take precautions, obviously getting our vaccinations and, and boosters, uh, wearing masks in crowded places, I, I still think this is very, very uh, worthwhile. Otherwise, you know, the inevitable happens. We get another uh, wave of disease. And, and as sure as God made little apples, as the saying goes, there'll be another wave here and maybe another one, another one, another one. We ain't through it. And then we have monkey monkeypox now, also challenging the, the World Health Organization as to whether it, it issues the international uh, declaration of concern about that. So, you know, probably in the West, we're kind of 
forgotten about infectious diseases. That was something that happened somewhere yeah. else. The pandemic has brought it home to us that we have to be on our guard around infectious and deadly disease. So, so when you when you arrived at, at Heathrow, did you feel like you were arriving in a country uh, prepared for, gripped by the possibility of a, of a variant which could be much more dangerous? No, I felt that people were very, very complacent. And uh, I've been uh, moving around, actually taking my mask off for this, uh, this interview, but being extremely cautious. I was at a, 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 co- a chair to board meeting last week where I kept the mask on. Many didn't. I understand 12 people have now got COVID from that uh, meeting. So, you know, it, 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 I think, you know, Europe's looking forward to a summer. It's been a really tough, you know, two years, three months since the pandemic was, was declared. But all, all I can say is we have it in our hands to curb transmission. And if we don't, we're going to get hit time and time again and possibly worse. Do, do you think Boris Johnson's got um, uh, a serious enough uh, grip on this issue then? I mean, he's been quite keen to sort of move on. We need, we need life to get back to normal. Do you think he was premature in doing that? I think a lot of countries put all their hopes on on vaccines, but uh, everything... I understand, tells me uh, that vaccine only won't stop the pandemic. Uh, With this pandemic, you need what's called the Swiss cheese approach. Vaccines, of course, aren't stopping a lot of people getting infected, but they are stopping as many deaths as it otherwise be, and they're stopping uh, a high rate of of ICU admission and and hospitalisation in general. So if you then layer your responses with uh, masking and, and public transport and and crowded places, Uh, if you maintain some physical distancing uh, requirements, if if you just layer measures, you you can curb numbers. And and I'd urge every country not just to rely on vaccines because it's not sufficient. My own country has swung a bit (laughs) in the direction of relying a lot on vaccines. And we have a huge Omicron wave at at, at the moment. Well, I was going to ask you Uh, that because... Lots of people here in the UK in particular looked at what was happening in New Zealand during the early days of the pandemic. Uh, Jacinda Ardern became a bit of a, uh, a sort of a cult hero among some people who thought, you know, she'd gone early and hard and those restrictions that meant, you know, you couldn't get back into uh, New Zealand if you left. You know, people wonder whether we should have been doing that. But now, of course, you know, the, those restrictions have lifted and now there's a, a spike. And I wonder whether looking back over the whole sort of two year period, whether you think that that was the right call um, uh, that Jacinda Ardern was making, or could she have done something differently? So the incredible thing in New Zealand was that we ended 2021 with barely 50 deaths in the whole country. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, it was so critical in that first year before there was any vaccine to do what we did. Uh, and, and people were very grateful for that. Uh, actually, <laughs> we saw off not only the, you know, the first round of the wild virus, we pretty much saw off Delta, where we had you know, an outbreak August last year, pretty much saw it off by Christmas. And Delta got people so frightened uh, because it was more lethal uh, that people came forward in huge numbers to be vaccinated. So the primary vaccination for two doses went to you know, somewhere close to 96% in New Zealand. The problem is then people get a bit complacent. So still a million people haven't picked up their booster. Well, if you only have two primary doses... Omicron is going to waltz right through you. Even with the booster, it, it, it's challenging. So this is the issue now. Unfortunately, the 
the child uptake has been uh, quite low for five to 11 year olds. It came low and probably hasn't been promoted enough. And most people one knows in New Zealand now are getting Omicron from their children or, or their grandchildren yeah. or teachers or somehow uh, in, in in connection with that. So so this has become, I think, a, a bit troubling uh, politically in yeah. New Zealand because we did do well, but now it's seen to rip away. It's really good to speak to you, uh, Helen. We'll continue the conversation in just a moment. It's Matt Jolly on Times Radio. Speaking to Helen Clark, former Prime Minister of New Zealand. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. And we bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from?